Hey, Kevin here, just popping in real quick to let you know that this episode of Philly Who with Zwei Kwok was recorded in the very early days of quarantine. Uh, so you might hear some references to the pandemic, and you're going to hear us talking about it as if it just started, because it did when we were talking about it. However, Zwei's story is still incredible, and it is never a better time to share it than today. So without further ado, here is the Philly story of Zwei Kwok. For me, being in Brain 3.0 is when you can access your inner wisdom and your capacity to see the bigger picture, to take a longer-term view, to see how things interconnect. You're listening to Philly Who, the podcast that tells the stories of the doers, thinkers, and performers of Philadelphia. My name is Kevin Schmidlin, and today I'm chatting with Zue Kwok. Zwei is the founder and CEO of Calm Clarity, a social impact organization that helps people overcome adversity through nurturing a mindset of growth, leadership, and resilience. She's also the founder of the Collective Success Network, a nonprofit that provides support to low-income first-generation students. A first-generation student herself, Zay grew up as a refugee in an impoverished Philadelphia neighborhood. She overcame adversity to graduate from Harvard and pursue a successful corporate career. But the high-flying corporate life wasn't for her. So after going on a journey to discover her life's purpose, Zoe returned to Philadelphia, where she now helps people from underserved neighborhoods recognize their potential. And I was just like... The sense of humanity and dignity here is as great as anywhere else, you know, but it's just overlooked and neglected. The story of Calm Clarity founder Zoe Kwok is now on Philly Who. Every year, thousands of people come to the United States in pursuit of the American dream. But the journey to success in a new country is often long and full of hardship. When Zoe Kwok was a toddler, her parents moved her family from a Vietnamese refugee camp to Philadelphia's Logan neighborhood. They knew their lives wouldn't be easy, but they hoped to give Zoe and her siblings the opportunity for a better future. Today, Zoe uses the hardships that she and her family faced as motivation for her work. You know, one of the things that have always driven me was that my mom would tell me stories of how I used to, I almost died in the refugee camps. And the only reason I was alive was because these volunteers came to the refugee camps to provide medical treatment to complete strangers. They risked their lives, they didn't have to be there, and yet they came, right? And those people gave me the medicines that allowed me to survive. And so there was always this sense that my life was a gift, you know, that it wasn't really mine, right? And so I always had this drive that one day I would come back to where I came from. Like I would come back to this area and make a difference. Wow, that's incredible. So tell me about the early days when you started to go to school in Philadelphia as you were growing up. Sure. So I was actually a slow developer. Uh, they noticed even in the refugee camps that 
while all the other babies were, you know, normally sitting and crawling and then walking and talking, I wasn't, right? And when they came to America, I continued to be really slow. I couldn't talk. But my mom enrolled me in a preschool because she had to work as a maid or a housekeeper to, right. to help pay the bills. And when it was time for me to start kindergarten, I remember the first day of school, I was just terrified. So I cried all day. I wouldn't, I hid underneath a desk. Yeah. You know, I didn't know what to do with, with that place. What was happening, right? Where were you? Why is mom and dad not here? <laughs> yeah, I was totally confused. No one explained to me. Everyone had to wear a uniform. It was just very confusing. Yeah. But that was because I couldn't communicate. And so my kindergarten teacher was horrified that I couldn't communicate and didn't seem to understand what she was saying. And luckily, I think my preschool um, Head Start teacher wrote a letter to tell the kindergarten uh, teacher that I was actually intelligent, that there might be other issues involved as to why I wasn't speaking, like language issues, right? Right. And so then they were willing to give me English as a second language and speech therapy. Wow. So then how did the tide turn then? I mean, you caught up and then I imagine, tell me more about the way you caught up and you're so academic, right? Like when did that start to change and how did you see that? So in hindsight, I think I had an auditory comprehension problem. Okay. And I think the seizures that I had during the time we were in the refugee camps, I've since learned a lot of seizures happen in the temporal lobe, okay. just where the auditory cortex is, right? Really? I didn't know that. So as a child, I don't think I could understand what people were saying. And my parents would switch between Vietnamese to like three different Chinese dialects, wow. right? And then English would come up. And so I think what happened is by the time I was in third grade, I finally learned how to read. Mm. And because I could read and I was a visual learner, then suddenly the world seemed to make sense. Yeah. And so it took two, three years and finally I could be understood when I spoke. Right. So when those things merged, being able to read and write and speak, I think that's when I, I took off like a rocket ship. How did you feel? Do you remember in those early days, like, did you feel that, that you were just not cut out to understand people or that you weren't just really cut out for school? And like, did that feeling change? Like, what were you experiencing during this time? I think before third grade, I didn't get what was happening. Yeah. I was just being taken from room to room. And then I think suddenly, like in third grade, when school actually became meaningful, like there was actually something to learn. And, and I got fascinated with history and science. And that was when everything kicked in. I'm like, oh, I know why I go to school. Mm. I go to school so I can learn about the world. Right. And then how did going to college, how did that hit your radar? Was that something that your parents wanted for you? Yes and no. I think like neither of them had gone to college, so they had this aspiration that they wanted their kids to go to college, yeah. but they couldn't provide any real guidance. It was just a ephemeral idea. And I know they were your typical parents in that every time I took home like a test that they needed to sign and I got a 99, they would ask, why didn't you get a hundred? Let's fast forward. You get into Harvard. That's like the top achievement. Is that how you felt? No, because the irony was my parents didn't even know what Harvard was. Wow. <laughs> right? Yeah. So for them, the top of the world was Penn. That was their dream. And I think I didn't really think about um, Harvard until my guidance counselor told me one day he nominated me for the Harvard Book Prize. I had no idea what a 
book price was, you know? What is a book price? So apparently at the end of junior year, like the third year of high school, all the Ivy League colleges, their alumni associations reach out to all the different high schools and say, we're going to award book prizes to your top students. We want you to pick students you think have the potential to actually come to Harvard or Princeton or Yale or whichever it is. And I asked him, why did you give me? And I said, why? Like, what is it for? He um, basically just said, like, I want you to know that you have the potential to go to Harvard. How did you feel when he said that? I was floored because, I mean, I'd never left Philadelphia, really, right? Especially, like, my neighborhoods. So I, we were first settled in Logan, and then we, my parents took over a takeout restaurant in West Oak Lane. And that was the world I knew, right? I had no idea, you know, what Harvard looked like. And I'd seen it in the movies, but to hear this person thought I was capable of it, I said, sure, I'll give it a shot. And I remember going home to tell my parents, and they were like, what's Harvard? Because they had no idea. It wasn't part of their world. And I explained it was the top school in the country. And they're like, oh, really? And they'll take you? Yeah. And, our, and my parents are really strict, like traditional Asian parents. So they believed that boys could do whatever they wanted, but girls had to stay home. Hmm. And I had pushed them and said, is there any way I could leave home for college? And they say, absolutely not. Penn is a good school. And I said, well, what if I got into the top school? What if I got into Harvard? Would you let me go? They said, well, since it's the top school and you probably won't get in, fine. <laughs> you know? Yeah, sure. Yeah, fine, kid. Yeah, get into Harvard, you can go. <laughs> right. And so I was like, okay, give me a goal and I'll run towards it. And so I got like application fee waivers and I gave it my best shot and I actually got in. So you go to Harvard. How did the reality of going to Harvard compare to what your expectations were? Well, I think the first year felt like magic in the sense that it was like watching a Harry Potter movie and, mm. you know, looking at Hogwarts. Like Harvard has all these historic buildings. Um, there's so much history and so many famous people who went through Harvard that it felt like you were on tour, you know, <laughs> like a For perpetual a tourist, right? <laughs> and I didn't really feel like I belonged there. So I wow. had definitely had imposter syndrome. What I wasn't prepared for was the culture shock because here I was, you know, having gone to a public school, magnet school. Right. Most of my friends were not wealthy. Right. Mm -hmm. And I grew up and like started over in poverty. And it was a huge challenge when I left um, Philadelphia because I was their most reliable child. <laughs> I was their most responsible child. I helped run the takeout with them. And. My parents actually sold the takeout because wow. they couldn't run it without me. So I felt really, really guilty about that. Yeah, I was going to say, did that did that weigh on you at all? Yeah. 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 But I, at that point, I said to them, you know, I've sacrificed so much and I'm not sacrificing Harvard. Yeah. You know, which was tough. Like they forced me to choose and I chose my own education. Wow. And I did get into Penn. I did get a major scholarship. But I just said, I need to leave. And so so they had to switch to like a laundromat, which they still live on top of today. And, you know, that's a lot of responsibility to put on like a 17-year-old. Right. And I had goals and I just wanted to take a break from this type of environment. And so I left that, went to Harvard with so much guilt, right? Like 
so much anxiety about what was happening back home and not being there to solve it with my parents. And then at Harvard, academically, I did fine the first year. I even made like, I think there's a Harvard honor roll or something, and I made the list my freshman fall. And then my um, grandmother passed away. So my father's mother had had dementia, and she slowly, slowly declined over like two decades. And so that was when the guilt hit really hard, and I started to have much more severe mental health issues and felt really out of place at Harvard. And so I pulled through, I graduated, my, my grades were okay. But I think by sophomore year, the class issues were like, I could no longer ignore it, you know? Yeah, yeah. Like by that point I realized the type of life I had and means and resources of my parents were a fraction of my classmates. Right. And I was supposed to compete with them, you know, in the same classes for the same types of jobs and internships without anywhere near the preparation or the guidance that they received from their families. Right. So the imposter syndrome took over my brain and the mental health depression, realizing later on that I had PTSD that was not treated, mm. you know, all of that, I think, um, created a darkness that took over and just hung over me. I couldn't see a positive future. I didn't understand how going to Harvard was going to help me because I didn't understand what it was leading to and whether I would be happy. And my parents' idea of the future was, well, you run a laundromat or you run a restaurant, you know, right, and, right. and that's not the type of future that, you know, Harvard was preparing us for. So it sounds like you you saw two futures, you, you know, you had two futures sort of presented to you. There was the familial presented future of owning a laundromat or a restaurant. There was the Harvard PhD, liberal arts, find a professor, mentor and research for the rest of your life future. You'd maybe didn't know yet what future was right for you. Is that right? I had never been exposed to the corporate world. My ability to imagine the future was limited to the role models that I had been exposed to. Yeah. And to be in a situation where I was totally lost in a dark place without any sense of the future and the shame it, I felt because such high expectations were placed on me. Mm. You know, I, I don't think at that time, I could articulate it. Now I see that confusion and that displacement and, you know, I call it psychological homelessness, right? When you break mm. out of one class, but you don't yet belong to the other class. And now I realize that that's one of the phases or that's a hallmark of social mobility is no longer fitting in with where you came from and yet not completely embracing the new social class that you've been kind of let into. So how do you escape this purgatory? I don't know if there's a way of escaping it versus you learn how to carve out your place in the world. Yeah. You know, instead of looking for a box where you fit in, you build the family that you want right? You build the community that you want. And so, I mean, it took a long time to, to learn how to own it. And even now there's still some confusion about, you know, class consciousness, like where do I belong? The Inquirer actually wrote a stories about me on December 31st of 2019. So I walked to the gas station to pick up the Inquirer. 
And and the next day they wrote a book about mindfulness. And I, I walked back to this gas station to pick up another paper. And I remember the first day I walked out and I said, well, if I walk this way, then I come across the path where these people were shot. Yeah. Right. If I take the other path, then I take the path where those people were shot. Right. Because there were different incidents. And like how many of those CEOs walked down streets where people were gunned down to pick up a paper with them featured in it? You know, I think it grounds me to be where my parents are, to see the neighborhood, because it also feels the work I do. Yeah. When I see such suffering and such poverty and such violence, right? Like, that's what gave birth to Calm Clarity. Right. You know, it's the ability to be in discomfort and yet still be compassionate. Right. It's the ability to feel pain and still be human. That's fascinating because I feel like many of who achieve social mobility or who may have never experienced an area like that with such violence, it probably gives you just that day-to-day reminder and perspective of just the, the many different bubbles of not only the world, but Philadelphia that are so close to each other yet have entirely different lives. Yeah. I mean, that's why I said it feels the work I do as a social entrepreneur. I mean, I see my neighbors as human beings, yeah. right, who get caught up into these cycles. And I remember being a kid and looking out this takeout window, right, where the customers would come and I would take orders and I would see people come in in such poverty. I would see really horrible things happen, you know, people robbing each other. And I had to find a way to process that as a kid, which is why I said I had PTSD at Harvard. Despite all of these challenges, Zoe managed to graduate from Harvard and then from the Wharton School of Business, and she pursued a high-powered career, traveling around the world and working with billionaires. Zoe was living the American dream, but she felt like something was missing. 2012, after graduating from Harvard, doing management consulting, doing business school, going to Asia to do more consulting, getting into private equity, growth capital investments, getting into social impact investments, like would leave my career and go off on this like soul searching quest to find my purpose in life. I had built the career that I needed to build to be able to make a difference. And then the question was, what difference are you going to make? So after finding incredible success in the business world, Zoe Kwok still wasn't feeling fulfilled. Having saved up enough money to support herself, she decided to quit her job and take time to figure out her purpose in life. So I was like, okay, I'm free. So what do I do with myself? And it just happened that um, a friend was getting married in Melbourne, Australia. And so a group of us decided to go to the wedding and then go hiking in New Zealand, right? And somewhere along that hike in New Zealand, it was beautiful. Um, It was a root burn trail, which is one of the most beautiful trails in the world. Um, We were, you know, high elevation along the, the peaks. And I remember thinking to myself, why don't I give myself permission to just live this way? Right, to live in this state of being inspired and awed by the world, Right. Like, why do I let myself go into these toxic jobs? Yeah. Right. Like, like, why can't I just let this freedom be the rest of my life? 
you know, do I really need to go back and interview for more finance jobs? Right. And I was like, maybe I don't. And so I made plans to go to Burma. Then I told my girlfriends, I think it's time for me to understand Buddhism. Like it's my ancestral religion. I have no idea what it's about, you know, and I'm in Asia. I've been here for six years now and I've just worked the whole time. So why not spend the last year trying to understand my purpose? And maybe if I learn how to meditate and study these Buddhist traditions, like they were experts at soul searching. Maybe that will give me some answers. I found travel agents that would book um, a tour of the Buddhist pilgrimage sites. I went by myself Wow! and, and bought a one-way ticket, laid out this itinerary and just went. And so off I went to uh, McLeod Ganj, this city in um, Dharamsala in the north where the Dalai Lama resides. And I wasn't expecting to stalk him or try to find him. It was more that I had been exposed to this philosophy and I wanted to understand it more. And so I went to the first retreat center. It's called Tushita. And um, it means place of joy. And one of the um, founders named Lama Zopa Rinpoche happened to be there recovering from a stroke. And I knew of him because they had a similar center, the same organization, had a, a, a sister center in Singapore that I had already started to visit. So I'd read some of his books and was familiar with him. But they said since he had a stroke, he wasn't meeting with students and you should leave him alone. But then I remember one night um, I heard chanting. And there was this figure who seemed like he could barely walk. He was circumambulating the main temple. And I was happened to stay at a room um, on the second floor of the main temple. So I could see him pass away around like clockwork, right? And so I decide to go outside to watch. And a night guard comes to me and says, do you know who that is? And I said, is that Lama Zilpa He said, yes. He said, why don't you join them? I was like, is that allowed? Like, I was even, the thought hadn't crossed my mind because I don't even know how to pray what they're praying. I have no exposure to whatever they're chanting. I don't know, no idea what's happening. He's like, go. And I was like, okay. So I run over there and I'm circumambulating with this person. He's the teacher, Richard Gere. He's a very highly respected person. And for some reason, and I couldn't tell if this was just like the excitement you feel when you run into a celebrity, but I just remember being the state of bliss around the sky, like just being so happy. And I couldn't stop smiling. I can't believe I'm walking with this person. And I'm, why am I so happy when I don't really know who he is? And after, you know, 20 minutes or so, he finally finishes and then he turns to me and starts talking to me, right? And he tells me that I'm really lucky to find true happiness. And I'm like, I don't know what you're talking about. Is what I'm feeling now true happiness because I'm blissed out because I ran into you? Or is there something more to this, right? Like, how do I know this is not a fleeting experience, right? And then he talked about how in the West, people don't know what real happiness is. So they chase it on mountains. They chase it by buying things. They chase it by ridiculous stunts, like shooting themselves out of cannons, you know? Yeah, yeah. And I was like, you're right. Like... Like they chase it by like jumping out of planes. I was like, damn it, he's naming my bucket list. Right. Right? I'm confused. So I, it left me kind of being like, what does he mean? These are, this is very mysterious. And then a few days later, he just decides to teach to our class. And I remember, you know, when he spoke, I didn't really understand what he was saying. But at some point in his teachings, I felt the sense of peace and happiness and mm. like this 
um, I don't know how to explain it. It's like an explosion of happiness at your heart and in your head. And it's almost like you're as big as the room mm. or beyond the room at the same time, yeah. which I'd never experienced before. And it blew me away because I didn't believe in religion. I had no spiritual practice. But at that point, I was like, it's all going to be okay. And from then on, I think it allows me to not care as much about the little things mm. because I still remember what that felt like to feel this oneness with like yeah. the universe. How much of that were you able to take back? Because it's it's one thing to have that enlightenment in that space, but then to come back home, right, to the previous environment where that may have not been the case, were you able to bring that feeling and that ability to find that true self back with you? I remember sitting in these silent meditation retreats and seeing like my own life, all the different thoughts start to interconnect as to like why I'm here, why did I go through what I went through, how does it all add together? And what I saw was myself in these three different modes of behaving. So what I was watching, you know, the takeout restaurant and often, you know, the violence that I experienced within my own family was what I would call brain 1.0. When the freeze, flight, fight mechanisms of the brain they completely hijack you. So you lose all your humanity, right, to, to survive and to protect yourself. And I saw that and I was like, wow, I don't like myself. And when other people are that way too, it's not who they really are. It's like an animal being cornered. You know, you see the worst of that animal. Then I saw this other state, right? That's a way of escaping from the state of, of survival and this... I call it striving, right? And you're maximizing yourself and all your benefits, but you're not looking at the greater good. And when people fight for a place in line, when people fight for putting things on the overhead baggage of an airplane, mm -hmm. right? You know, I call that brain 2.0, right? When your reward and acquisition system, your dopamine system is just me, 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 me. I need to get what I want. And so, so I saw how I lived a lot of times at Harvard, at Wharton, in the finance world, like in 2.0, because that was contagious and that was the overall culture, right? And I was like, and no matter how much you get, how much you win, how many trophies you line up, life can still suck. You know, you can still feel lonely. You can still feel miserable. You always feel like you don't have enough. And I saw that and I was just like, yeah, I, I could never, ever be happy if that part of me kept taking over, you know? And then I saw what I would call the brain 3.0 version of me, where, you know, in like the darkest moments, some flash of insight or wisdom would keep me going, would help me see the bigger picture, a sense of purpose, a sense of why I'm here, what I'm doing this for, or who I'm doing this for, and how that is what actually got me into Harvard. So for me, being in brain 3.0, is when you can access your inner wisdom and your capacity to see the bigger picture, to take a longer term view, to see how things interconnect, and to see how your actions and your behaviors, your thoughts, your words can have these ripple effects on other people. And this very intuitive sense of compassion and interdependence and realize that the impact you're about to make 
the way you connect to someone, right, can have this impact of activating those same neural networks in you to activate those in them. When I talk to someone else in Brain 3.0, they can activate Brain 3.0 and come into the state of consciousness with me. I remember walking around my neighborhood and I remember seeing the trees in the fall. The first fall I came back and I was like, you know, nature is as beautiful here in this neighborhood as it is in the wealthiest places yeah. of the world. Yeah. Right? The, the moon and the sun, the stars, they're just as beautiful here than they are like in the Grand Canyon. Wow. Right? And the people here can be as kind and as compassionate as anywhere else. Yeah. Like I remember seeing homeless people in the subway and watching someone who you could tell barely had enough money to pay the bills mm. would open up their wallet and give money to someone else. Mm. And I was just like, the sense of humanity and dignity here is as great as anywhere else, you know, but it's just overlooked and neglected, right? you know? Zoe decided to put an end to this neglect. Using neuroscience, she developed a workshop that helps people, especially people from difficult backgrounds, gear their mindset towards growth, leadership, and resilience. Zoe called the workshop Calm Clarity, and she first taught it to high school students in some of Philadelphia's most impoverished neighborhoods. So with Calm Clarity, I mean, it started really humbly. It was me remembering all the science that I'd read for the last like 20 years and packaging it into a curriculum and finding places where I could actually do a focus group with students. So the first focus group was actually at Carver High School in the fall of 2013. And then the kids from Masterman, who was part of this focus group, they couldn't really come to Carver, so they asked me to come to Masterman. And then they arranged for me to meet with one of the teachers of the enrichment program and make it a full pilot, not just a focus group. And I jumped on that. I'd run a pilot in West Philadelphia with Penn's Netter Center for students at Sayer High School and West Philadelphia High School, like just across the board, all the high schools that they had. And I remember seeing the transformation. The students wrote about how they came in wanting to fight, and now that they learn how to forgive and make peace. They lost all interest in fighting. In fact, they became peacemakers in their families and their communities. Guys covered in tattoos who spent their lives looking tough, you know, so they wouldn't be beaten up. Like they wrote about how they were now in touch with their feelings and understood the importance of creating social support networks and helping other people to use these tools so that they would find peace hmm. and be able to build um, more constructive paths forward. I remember later I got connected to Leadership Philadelphia and Liz Dow wanted me to run it for the core class of 2015. And in the core class, there was the, a principal of one of the KIPP high schools, W.B. Du Bois mm -hmm. Academy. And so he wanted me to run it for their teachers as a like staff training, a PD thing, which I did. Then he said, so what's the student version look like? Hmm. And I said, it's the same version you guys just did. And he, his, his mouth dropped. He was like, what? How, how can students go through what we just went through? 
I said, the kids I ran it for, the high school kids I ran it for before did fine. He said, yes, you ran it at Masterman. Of course they couldn't understand it. I said, no, I ran it at Sayer. Wow. <laughs> you know, and yeah. he was like, oh. And I was just like, you don't believe in your students. Wow. You know, that they have the capacity to do the same program that you and your staff just went through. Wow. Right? Those types of discoveries are really eye-opening. So on the show, two questions that I always ask are, what excites you most about Philadelphia and what's the biggest challenge facing Philadelphia today? The most common answer to the biggest challenge facing Philadelphia is either one or both of the education system and just the abundance of poverty. And I wonder, based on what you've just said, if the folks who are put in the position to make an impact on the education system and on poverty are preventing any progress there because they don't believe that the people that are subject to, you know, the current non-ideal situations can actually handle it, right? There is an expectation gap. Yeah. And I know because when I was coming up, right, I wasn't expected to be anything. Mm. And when I started excelling academically, my parents actually told me to slow down. And she, and they were like, we don't know why you're so ambitious. You're only <laughs> going to be disappointed in life. Wow. My goodness. Right. They actually said, like, you're going to be really unhappy because, you know, like, it's not going to work out the way you want. Right. It hurts, you know. And I remember hearing other people speak that way. It's like, they ain't ever going to work out, you know. Yeah. Um, and and this hopelessness, this cynicism, right, is crushing. And I think that negativity is probably why people become helpless. Like they stop trying. Yeah. But there's a subset of people. They don't know why. But there's a subset of people who never give up. <laughs> hmm. You know, who just try again. Yeah. Try something else. And so, um, so, th so that's what Calm Clarity was, this attempt to package, you know, a bunch of skills that I learned how to not give up. And when I shared it at Sayre in West Philadelphia... I saw people stop letting themselves fall into 3.1.0 because that was all they knew. And they began to bring themselves into 3.0 because they expected more from themselves, right. even if the world didn't. Yeah. And the fact that they were teaching their friends and their siblings and their family how to do these tools too on their own was crazy. And even the security guard, we first held it at Sayer. We just invited her to sit in on the class and help with discipline if needed. So Mrs. Brown had the loudest voice. You could hear screaming at the hallway at the students, right? And she herself wrote a like a feedback survey at the end about how she doesn't scream anymore at her own children and other students. And she talked about how she teaches Calm Clarity tools to her grandchildren on the weekends when she babysits. Wow. And I was just like, like this stuff is transformational and it's not limited to class. But it's about access, yeah. right? I was teaching it completely free pro bono. I couldn't sustain doing it. So, like, how do we create a way to scale these tools and share it more broadly? And so I focused on college students and then started to build weekend workshops where professionals would come pay money for this while we also invited college students to come. So it was like two for one. One group comes free, the other group pays for the cost, right? And so that kept 
being adapted into different formats until Villanova people raised their hand and said, we'll host you here. And so we started packing it with like 30, 40 college students, as many college students as would be free that weekend to come right right across the entire city. Penn, Temple, Drexel, CCP, Villanova, Cabrini, Haverford, Swarthmore. So before coronavirus happened... I was about to kick off what I called a volunteer catalyst program where we would train educators and alumni students to teach Calm Clarity, right? And now that's on hold. <laughs> As everything is. <laughs> but I, I, I think it this crisis has proven the need for it. Yeah. And so I think when this all comes down, we can re-kick off the training as Calm Clarity took off, Zoe looked for more ways to share its ideas. And in 2016, she landed a book deal. That same year, a viral article led her to develop the Collective Success Network, a nonprofit that supports low-income first-generation students. I had written um, an article called Poor and Traumatized at Harvard. It was the first thing I wrote on Medium, and it went viral. Like 250,000 people eventually read it, and I was being flooded with you know, requests from first-generation college students or people just venting to me about all the things they were suffering. And that's when, you know, the Collective Success Network came into uh, fruition because I was like, it's not enough to talk about these things. What are we doing about this? And so then I was like, if it's because every first-generation college graduate, right, then focuses on building careers, and doesn't do anything to reach backwards to help the people who go to college uh, for the first time, you know, like who are the first in their families to go to college to like navigate that path. And every student is constantly reinventing the wheel. Everyone struggled, survived, and then just moved on with their life, right? And so I said, if I don't change that, then this is not going to change. How do you find those first-generation students so that you can provide them with this knowledge? So that's one of our challenges going forward. Right. But um, that essay I wrote made everyone come out of the woodwork. Mm. That was a beautiful thing about that article, you know, where it was a bunch of people in isolation who didn't know anyone. Um, once that article came out, I was flooded with these um, people reaching out, yeah. students from all these campuses, um, people who were first-generation graduates saying, I was I, that, that happened to me too, right? Right. And so that's why I felt like this was the time if I don't do it and I lose all these connections, then we have nothing to leverage. I did a workshop at Penn. We had almost 200 people register and 100 people came, which is a lot for, for college. And, and that led to having student leaders to build the Collective Success Network together. So what has the Collective Success Network uh, been doing recently due to the coronavirus crisis? Yeah, so I wasn't planning on anything, to be honest, right? I was just trying to get this Catalyst program off the ground. And then when the school district announced that they were going to shut down, all the universities announced that they were going to vacate campuses, I was like, what is happening? Like, yeah, I know that our students can't afford to vacate campus. Like, yeah. like the world, the, the, the sky is falling, for these students, right? And so, you know, I sent out the notice that Catalyst program was on hold and I quickly like mobilized the Collective Success Network. We have a steering committee made of the professional core volunteer team 
and the core like student volunteers who are officers across our three campus chapters. And I was like, let us know what's happening. <laughs> like, what can we do? And so we began by building two surveys. I wrote this very detailed survey to ask students, like, what help do you need? And we're like, okay, we've got to focus on the most urgent thing, which is the campus uh, evacuations, right? So first we focused on every student who needed help moving or storing or getting into temporary housing to make sure no one was homeless. So then we started the student relief fund where, thankfully, we had donors who were giving us money to help you know, we were trying to carve out how much do we put, how much do we keep in the emergency for other reasons. And so finally I said, okay, let's just start with $4,000. And we made it $5,000 to give grants of $50 out to as many students as possible and try to do it fair across all the different colleges. And then when I realized like students would have to drop out of college if they couldn't take online classes, then I was like, we got to figure out how to get laptops. And again, like no idea how to do this. It started with forms, you know, asking students what they need in a laptop and then doing a mirror image form to ask the right questions to match whoever's offering a laptop to what the students need. And that's much slower to get off ground because not that many people have spare laptops. And some of the students are taking very technically demanding courses that require very powerful computers. Today, along with helping first-generation students displaced by the pandemic, Zoe is working to fight some of the nation's most complicated problems using concepts from Calm Clarity. Around the time the book came out in May 2018 was when I realized that the next phase of my work would have to be tackling unconscious bias. Because it's one thing to understand Brain 1.0, 2 and 3.0, but how does that change the world? And the way that it most relates to the corporate world, the way it most relates to politics and school policies is in the way that it can help us deconstruct unconscious bias. They're hardwired into Brain 1.0. Right. And our chase for power and the way we reinforce the power structure, the way we reinforce white supremacy is connected to Brain 2.0. Right. And if you can start to take yourself out of Brain 2.0, you will learn to stop reinforcing white supremacy and any other system of dominance that is built upon oppression. Right. If you had one message that you could get to every Philadelphian, what would you say? I mean, for us to become the city of brotherly love, right, for us to fulfill that destiny, we can only fulfill that destiny when we're all in Brain 3.0 together. And if you want to alleviate poverty, if you want to solve the issues with education, how do we create an education system that actually activates Brain 3.0, right? Because when you take students who have been heavily traumatized, you can teach them what their best possible self looks like and the power of learning about the world. If you like the show, let us know. We're on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at PodPhillyWho. PhillyWho is a Q9 production. This episode was produced and hosted by me, with writing and editing by Catherine Nails, editing and mixing by Max Graham, music by Lee Rosevere, and artwork by Lauren Labick. For PhillyWho, I'm Kevin Schmidlin. Until next time.